Excuse me, but are you loving this podcast? If you are, you can support the show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. All you have to do is hit the link in the show description to support now. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Excuse me, I have something to say. This is the podcast where we have real and open conversations about life and everything it throws our way. I'm your host, Sean Philip Naylor, and you can join me each episode as I talk with inspiring people who also have something to say. You can also join in on the conversations by contacting me directly through the show's official social channels, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at excuseme underscore pod, Facebook and YouTube, search Excuse Me, I Have Something to Say, or visit our official website, excusemeihavesomethingtosay.com. As always, all links are embedded into the show notes for you, and don't forget to click on that subscribe button. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, remember you can rate and review the show there. Hi guys, thanks for joining me this week on Excuse Me. I hope you're all doing well and staying safe. I'd love to say a huge thank you to all of you for listening to and for your feedback of um, the last episode. It's all been very touching. Coming out is a very unique experience for any individual who is doing it. So to know that my own personal story has the ability to help others means so much. So thank you all for allowing me the opportunity to share my story with you. This week, I've been racking my brain trying to figure out what kind of content I want to put out into the world. I wasn't wanting to get too heavy after last week's episode, but to be honest, there has been some news over the past few weeks that has really pissed me off. Life isn't always light and fluffy, so rather than put out lighter content this week, I'm just going to use my podcast and my small platform to share something that I'm pretty passionate about. So if you'll excuse me, I have something to say about Texas and their new anti-abortion laws. So for those of you who haven't been on planet Earth for this past few weeks, you may have missed the news that the complete asshat of a human who also happens to be the governor of Texas has just signed a legislation that bans abortions after the detection of what anti-abortion campaigners call a fetal heartbeat. This means that women in the people of Texas cannot abort a pregnancy after six weeks from conception. Now, please bear in mind that at this point in a pregnancy, most women are unaware that they're even pregnant. This legislation has taken away a woman's right to choose. So if a woman isn't ready mentally, physically, financially, or whatever the reason to have a child, she now has no choice in it if she lives in Texas. That's not right. Now, my first point is this. Men should not be making decisions regarding women's bodies. And I also hear that there were women involved in the making and passing of this legislation. So let's try this sentiment instead. Other people should not be making decisions regarding other people's bodies or their right to choose. Now, let's try this one on for size. If you don't want to have an abortion, then don't have one. If you don't believe that abortions are right then good for you. That's called your opinion. And other people have ones that might be different. By taking away a woman's right to choose what happens to her body, we are creating many more potentially dangerous scenarios for women, particularly women in Texas right now. 
Now, here's the real kicker to this new bill. This law is unique in that it gives any individual the right to sue doctors for performing this procedure past six weeks. Anyone out inside or outside of the state instead now has the power to sue abortion providers or anyone who could have helped a person get the procedure. And they can seek up to $10,000 US dollars. So here's an example for you to think about. Let's say your daughter, your sister, your friend, someone you know is raped and she doesn't go to the police or report it straight away, if at all, because it was too traumatic and the stigma society has assigned to rape survivors. Then six weeks pass and she goes to her doctor and discovers that she's pregnant with her rapist's child. She makes the decision that she doesn't want to have her attacker's child growing inside her body or to have any child that was born from that kind of violence. She decides the best thing for her, her body, her health, her mental health and her future is to terminate this pregnancy. She gets in a taxi, a Lyft, an Uber, whatever, and goes to a clinic to get the procedure. The fetus is successfully terminated and the woman who has already gone through so much can breathe a sigh of relief. Or can she? Because if she's in Texas now, she has to live knowing that if someone finds out and disagrees with her choice about her body, then they can sue not only her doctor, but also the driver that took her there. Please, can someone explain to me how this is okay? Here's an even more jarring scenario for you to think about. In Texas, a father can rape his daughter. And if she tries to abort it after six weeks, that father can essentially go and collect $10,000. Now, let me ask you, do you think this law and these two extreme but not unheard of examples are okay? Are they right? Let me ask you, when listening to these examples, did you imagine it happening to, happening to yourself or someone you know? How did that make you feel? Were you upset? Angry? Was there a bit of heat on it and on the feeling? If so, let me tell you this. You, my friend, are a feminist. People stigmatize feminism and the fight that women have fought over the years to be able to vote, to wear pants, to govern their own bodies the same way that we men can do. If the passing of this law has shown me anything, it is that the feminism fight is far from over. I've released 30 episodes of the podcast over the past two years, and it still baffles me that the episodes I've shared, which are about women, women's rights and feminism, are the least listened to episodes. I personally believe the picture society has painted of the angry feminist and of women in general is to blame. Because I can tell you this, the content in those episodes is top-notch. The edu it's educational and engaging, and the incredible women who feature on my show are strong, entertaining, and engaging women. So with that in mind, and this abomination of a law passing in Texas, I encourage you to stand up, speak out, support women, their right to choose what happens to their own bodies, be as strong as a woman, and admit that you're a goddamn feminist and say it with pride. I'm sharing with you guys now an abridged version of a past episode, actually my favorite episode I've done on the podcast. The history of feminism, because I think this topic still needs to be discussed and people still need to educate themselves. So join me now with the incredible Rochelle Lindquist for the history of feminism. All right, let's get down to business, shall we? So uh, as previously mentioned, today we're having a conversation about feminism. And uh, Rochelle, I'm going to jump straight on in and I'm going to ask you what feminism means to you, what it looks like for you. So feminism for me is about fighting for the, the equal rights of women 
and female identifying people. But it has progressed to this point now where feminism is also about all kinds of human rights. It's about all kinds of issues that everyone faces. We're in this new kind of phase where feminism is used as a platform to talk about all kinds of different uh, human rights issues and all those intersections that you have in that area. Awesome. I got to say, when I I started really pondering this episode, um, I did go straight to Dr. Google to ask Google about feminism. And I was surprised at the the types of questions that came up. So the article I saw was, it was the seven most Googled questions about feminism. And the next article was why ask Google when you can ask a feminist. So I've put the two articles together and I just want to touch on those surface level questions, I suppose, that I was quite disappointed to, to read, if I'm honest. So I'm going to ask my feminist friend some questions that all the people want to know, apparently. So, Rochelle, can you please tell me, uh, question one, why are feminists so angry? Well, I mean, you know, we like after burning the male effigies and uh, all that kind of stuff, like you just get a little bit riled up. No, but really, <laughs> look, there is this prevailing stereotype of the angry feminist. And quite frankly, wouldn't you be angry if for hundreds and you know, thousands of years you had been enslaved and suppressed and not afforded the same rights as other people equal to you? Uh, it's it's a stupid question. There is some anger there, absolutely, but it's the result of things not changing. And when we get to talking about the history, you, the listeners and yourself, you'll start to understand just how long it's taken, how many years of fighting for different portions of those rights that we've fought for, it actually took to get to the point where we got those rights. So I think, you know, feminists are sometimes angry and I think that's warranted. <laughs> And anger is a completely valid emotion, especially when you are coming from any sort of minority that, you know, they've had to do it tough. They haven't had the same rights. Even, you know, me as a gay man, I get angry. So why can't women? Like it's, it's a whole thing. Yeah, definitely. Thank you for answering that question. Let's move on to number two. The second most Googled question about feminists. Do feminists hate men? No. Misandrists hate men. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it's not, it doesn't follow hand in hand that just because you're a feminist, you hate men. That's an unreasonable suggestion to make. I love men, all the men. Uh, no, just Daniel. But, you know, <laughs> some of the other ones are right. I think that that's, that's something that's really born of this kind of misinformation about the movement. I yeah. think that's where that comes from. And also, you don't just have to be a female to be a feminist. So it's kind of, I, I'm not a man-hating man, but I do consider myself a feminist. To, and I guess like anything, it's a spectrum. Feminists don't hate men, guys. It's okay. Yeah, 100%. They, they don't hate men. You know, men can be feminists. Let's, uh, let's all just uh, drop that silliness right now. <laughs> <laughs> the next question was probably the one that irked me the most. Rochelle, can you please tell the audience, why do feminists not shave? look there are some feminists who choose not to shave and there are some feminists who choose to shave but shaving all of your bodily hair like removing it all i think that that has a root in the feminine ideal of beauty from the renaissance because that was how women were painted to be kind of hairless and in a way it does kind of relate to a sense of innocence or childlikeness so because hair obviously comes in as you age and as you get a little bit older and stuff. So it is a sign of puberty and maturity and, um, you know, better that we are hairless and more pure. I don't know. It's some fucking bullshit, but I, I, I do shave because I like to shave, but there are feminists who choose not to and men don't have to shave anything if they don't want to. And if they want to, then, you know, go for your life. But it's just like, it's stupid. It's just body hair. What's See, the big deal on the topic of body hair? Just, just going to, digress from feminism just for a, a second i get really annoyed and this is a personal i guess it's a personal preference get really annoyed when you know you're with a guy and he's like smooth as a baby's bum down there because it to me i'm just like but AP, isn't it it's I, I, I you know and the same thing with like the same thing with women like you don't have to be at the end of the day it's your body it's your choice so you can do whatever you want with it and it's that's the really annoying thing is that i find my partner very attractive with a little bit of hair on his chest. And then he prefers sometimes to not have that. And I'm like, but I like it. 
but I can't tell you not yeah. to do it because it's your body. So I just have to appreciate it. I love you no matter how you look. Um, sorry to yeah, digress. Personal there, preferences, but yeah, I, I know I, I feel you. I like, I like them hairy. Yeah. yeah. You know, some feminists shave, some feminists don't. Some people shave, some people don't. Question four, uh, does a, a feminist have to be a female? No, uh, being a feminist just means that you are for equal rights for women. You know, that's, that's really the definition of the meaning. So if you believe that women should have equal rights and you're a feminist, it's not really about what you identify with gender wise. It's just about that simple fact. I'm here. I share the planet with you. Let's all get along and treat each other the same. Yes. Let's go with that. Let's everyone try this out. It's this thing called respect. (laughs) Let's give that a go. <laughs> Fun fact as well, it doesn't cost a thing. Now, uh, this one this is, is an interesting one. Uh, Rochelle, can you please tell us, do feminists ever get married? Yeah, of course. I mean, if they want to. The thing isn't about eliminating or abolishing marriage. I mean, I, can, I definitely do see how marriage as a representation of the construct, the social contract that we had of marriage up until a certain point, it really was something that had been used to basically package women up into a box and shift them over from the responsibility of one household to another. And you were kind of like, in a sense, you were enslaved to your husband by being married to him, especially before we had the right to own any property, to make any money, to vote, anything like that. Um, So I can definitely see how some feminists do disagree with marriage from that standpoint. But marriage has evolved just as, you know, women and relationships and the dynamics of that have evolved. And I think that you can get married as a woman and a feminist and be all right with that. I just think that you can have a feminist marriage. That being said, I personally (laughs) wouldn't change my last name, you know, and I wouldn't do anything to appease or disappear as, as a individual i wouldn't want to disappear into a relationship and become just one half of someone else we're two whole people that get along and support each other and we're partners and that's an equal partnership that is how i think a feminist marriage would work that is essentially how all marriage should work because yeah correct especially (laughs) especially in uh, today's day and age um now the next question i feel like we've already covered it so we can we can just uh graze past this one um, what does a feminist, feminist, excuse me, what does a feminist believe in? Well, uh, equal rights for women. Beautiful. Straight to the point. Concise. I like it. Um, all right. <laughs> now, this is the, the, the other one. So there was a shaving one that really bothered me and this one really bothered me as well. But this one for many different reasons. Will identifying as a feminist hurt your career? Yeah, no, I think it will. It's, it's a really complicated thing. It depends on where your career is, like which field are you in? And is this something that can be good for your career, something, you know, that can sort of be used for your career or is it something that can't? So say if you're working for the Human Rights Commission, if you're working for, you know, in America, Planned Parenthood or here, Children by Choice, being a feminist is a good thing for your career. And it's very useful for your career in almost every other industry. (laughs) Uh, look, I think being a feminist, being an outspoken feminist, so someone who says something, yeah. that is bad for your career. And that's a shame. It's, it's, a, it's a big shame because essentially when you look at, at what feminism means, it really is about equality. And so the fact that you're yeah. somebody who is striving for equality yet in your job, you can't openly always identify as that which is actually something quite noble, yet in the, the business world, it's not which I guess is going to lead us into the next section. So as I mentioned in the intro, I'm not sure if I can really call myself a feminist because I don't know as much about the history of the movement as I think I probably should. And also sometimes over the years, history gets a little bit lost, especially on the newer generations that are coming up. They sort of don't always get, I guess, the full story about where a movement has come from, but they're very well versed in the term. So for feminist ex- uh, the example, um, Rochelle, can you educate me please? And anyone who's listening that might not already know a little bit about the history of the, the feminism movement. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm not an expert. I didn't do gender studies at uni. I want to acknowledge that I'm just someone <laughs> who has an interest in this. So if I've got anything wrong, let Sean know. Don't let me know because 
yeah, leave her alone. It's come at not me. Really my problem. It's his problem. Yeah, come <laughs> come at him. Uh, okay, so basically, feminism has been around since about the 1840s, and it began with the first wave. And the first wave of feminism was the suffragettes, and their main focus was to establish the right to vote and the right to own property and the right to work and be educated for women because that didn't exist at the time. So it began with something called the Seneca Falls Convention. Uh, Almost 200 women came together and this was in 1848 and they gathered to discuss those civil rights issues that they were facing and they really wanted to push to establish those rights for themselves. So it began there. And at that point, women of color were included in the movement, but it takes a very dark turn very quickly. Uh, Basically, in the 1870s, the 15th Amendment was passed in America, which gave black men the right to vote. And that happened before women had achieved the right to vote. The privileged white women who were involved in the suffragette movement at that time became very politicized by it and unfortunately identified it as an issue that black men be given the right to vote before them, which led them then to separate the movement out for privileged white women, which is kind of fucked up. And uh, from there, basically, they they didn't allow women of color at some of the marches at all. And if they did allow them to be there, they forced them to walk in the back, which is really disappointing to yeah. see have happened in the past. But these things are flawed. It's not to say that the the actual goals that they were fighting for, they were important goals. They're huge goals that I'm grateful for today, but I still take issue with some of their other beliefs at the time. So, so you know, sorry, I was just, sorry to interrupt you just to clarify. So, okay. The the feminism movement was already around and it pretty much involved all women of, of colour and, and, you know, all races at the time. And this is predominantly in the US. Am I right? Yes. Yep. Yeah. Okay. And over in London as well. Okay. But that developed a little bit later. And obviously over in Australia, we um, are pretty fucking far behind everything. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's sad and true. So the the women's rights movement that was all happening, women would, were trying to get the vote at this point. And the African-American gentlemen got the right to vote before white women. And then the white women took issue with that because essentially, yes. you know, I hate to use this terminology, especially in this day and age, but the, the slaves were able to vote before they were. Yes. There was terrible quotes in the paper at the time that ran along the lines of, we might as well have been born on the plantation if we're not going to be given the vote before, Ooh. you know, the slaves. It was revolting, but you also have to remember that this was the 1870s and yeah. historically feminism has been quite privileged and white. And that's been one of the issues that obviously feminists now are fighting to sort of change that perception and to make more space for those other intersections, people of color and people coming at the conversation from, you know, less privileged platforms. Right. Okay. Sorry. Sorry to interrupt you with that one. Okay. Can you pick up where you left off? Yeah. So, okay. So we're in the first wave and they're fighting for the right to vote and they're fighting for the right to own property and to um, work and get an education. Obviously, we talked about how they took issue with the men of color being granted the vote before them with the 15th Amendment in the 1870s. So fast forward to the 1920s, and it takes up until this point for the 19th Amendment to be passed in America, which gave women the right to vote. So they were fighting for that for 80 years before they got it. So 80 years before they actually reached that point where they get to vote. Really interestingly, around that sort of time, in 1916, Margaret Sanger actually opened the first reproductive rights, uh, sorry, reproductive, what's the word? So the, the first birth control, okay, the first birth control center where you can right. go and visit and discuss your reconductive, yeah, reproductive rights. And this is the, I'm, uh, based on the article, if I read the article that you sent me right, this is the woman who would then, I guess, later pave the way for Planned Parenthood and those sorts of institutions. That is what that became, yeah. So in 1916 is when that was established and they were starting to look at reproductive rights as well because something that people don't really think about because we live in this age now where we have access to condoms and the pill and all of that kind of good stuff, which enables us a bit more freedom. Before you had access to that, as a woman, you were 
pretty much enslaved by your body in that if your husband got you pregnant, you couldn't do anything about it. You had to have the child, which meant that you then had a child to look after. And it was just this kind of ongoing cycle where without that without that fundamental right to decide what happens with your body, you're, you're really left in a position where you don't get choices. You know, your body doesn't belong to you properly if you can't decide what happens with it. Yeah. So it's a very important right that they started fighting for, but that was in 1916. And yes, as you said, that, that went on to become Planned Parenthood, which is really interesting. So that's the first wave. And they finally do achieve, obviously, the right to vote, the right to work, the right to be educated. The second wave of feminism came about in the 1960s and ran through until the 1970s. Second wave feminists were really focused on basically stopping the gender pay gap and having reproductive rights. So obviously following on from that because those rights were not, you know, completely established and they're still being fought today, which is pretty horrifying. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. But yeah, they were really focused on that. They were focused on, you know, my body, my choice. And it was about also fighting the systematic sexism and patriarchy so that women could build to a place in the world where they were treated more equally. Because even in the 1960s and 70s, sure, you can vote and you can work and you can study, but you were still, you know, not going to be given the same opportunities as men were given. And so I, that was part of the issue. I think this, for me at, at the at least, this is the second wave feminists are the feminists in which I guess I'm probably most familiar or at least after, I mean, of course you sent me all those articles and I've read them and obviously a lot of things sort of fall into place the more you read, but these are sort of, this is sort of the generation of feminists that are quote unquote burning their bras, right? Yes, which never actually happened. Interestingly, no that's a fallacy. No bras were harmed during this movement. No bras were harmed in the <laughs> making of this social movement. Actually, that that's something that kind of cropped up because these women gathered and they were protesting, I believe it was the Miss America pageant in the late 1960s. And at that protest, they threw down items that they saw to be sexualizing or oppressive of women. Some of them were bras and some of them were playboys. And it was sensationalized in the local paper saying they were burning their bras, but it didn't actually happen. I, I think from some point there forward, probably it did happen as a result of people copying what they thought it was. And a little side note, um, it was just this morning that I saw a movie trailer and this is exactly what it's about. So it's a, it's a movie that's coming out very soon. Um, it stars one of my favorite actresses, Kira Knightley, and it's all about that movement and about the Miss America pageant. So I'm going to try and get my hands on a copy of that because I really want to see how Hollywood are going to do this one. Yeah, that'll be interesting. I always like to see how they sort of tackle these kinds of points in history because you've obviously got to make it entertaining. You've got to tie in some human emotion and characters and story arc around the factual events. So it's always interesting to see what they put mm. in and what they leave out. But yeah, so I mean, the second wave, that was very much kind of driven by things like the female eunuch, the female mystique. You know, it was characters like Jermaine Greer and Betty Frieda. So these were the sort of idols that we looked at at the time. And a lot of what they did was really flawed. So they tried to make room within that movement a bit for women of color, but they didn't do a very good job of it. And they didn't really appreciate or acknowledge the double disadvantage it is to be not just a woman, but a woman of color. And that's 
one of the things, like I was saying before, that, you know, feminists now are really very aware of. But yeah, they were fighting for those basic things. It was about that gender pay gap. And theoretically, they won that fight because the Equal Pay Act came in in 1963. And that outlawed the the gender pay gap, except it doesn't really work that way. Because as we know, statistically, women are still paid less, they're offered less, um, you know, for similar roles. They don't uh, get promoted as much. If you are of an age where you might give children, you are more likely to be looked over for a promotion. And if you have children, again, same thing, you're, you're unlikely to get that promotion. So it's, it's kind of um, just this ongoing disadvantage that people don't really acknowledge is really happening. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously the reproductive rights, we, we still haven't made a huge headway with that. So. <laughs> still a fight. It's still a fight all these years later. Everybody's still fighting um, for something, right? Yeah, absolutely. The other issue with the second wave is, is that they um, they kind of pushed for this idea of women being very similar to men and this rejection of femininity as a way to kind of assimilate more into society. So the rejection of anything deemed to be classically feminine because those were just shackles put on you by society because you were just you know, the way you had been viewed was to just be there and be pretty and be decorative and prop up other people. So they rejected all of that, which meant that, you know, there was this kind of rejection of what was deemed classically feminine, your makeup and, you know, beauty and all that kind of stuff. So this is where the, I'm just going to say, I want to say stigmatism of feminism came around where, you know, you had the people going, you know, the burning of the bras, you had the people saying, you know, if I'm, identifying as a feminist, then that's a bad thing. I'm a a lesbian or I'm man-hating or that's where that sort of... Yeah, a lot lot of that kind of negativity about feminism, a lot of that fear of the label and identifying it in those terms, the branding that people seem to associate with feminism, that really is derived from the second wave. And it's really hard because that branding, as you call it, that people associated with being a feminist at the time is still something I think the 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 word feminist is fighting today like it's still you know it has it still has those stigmas attached to it that you know if you're a feminist you're you're man hating you're burning bras you're not wearing makeup you're not feminine you're you know you're against all of those things and you actually don't have to be no you don't i mean at the time they the and this is partly what bugs me about the second wave is is that they didn't embrace women who chose to be feminine or who chose to be in the home it was about choice, but they didn't respect that choice because they felt their way was the way. And again, with the second waivers, they also had very problematic views on sex workers and trans women. They didn't view them as real women, which is ludicrous and horrible. And really, you just, I just, it just baffles the mind. It's awful. And, you know, it's really unfortunate that there are still voices that speak up in in today's world about those kinds of issues and provide that point of view because there's just no place in the world for it. No, there's not. Um, Essentially, you know, everybody is born onto the same planet and everybody should be treated the same way, no matter gender, skin color, you know, whatever. Second waivers, though, they, of course, were fighting for something. They felt like they were what they felt like they were making good inroads at the time. And everything, I guess, is really a sign of the times. And now we're living in a very different time. And I find that sometimes there's a little bit of not hatred, for the previous waves, but I guess, you know, maybe a little bit of, well, they could have done things a little bit differently, the ones before, but at the same time, they were living in a different time. Yeah. And all of that is true. And that's a fair point, but it is, it still is very problematic. And I think that we can take what was good from those philosophies. We can take and respect the points that they did make that were good and the um, the things that they were fighting for that we do agree with and still respect them for that. But it, they're not perfect. They're everyone are, everyone's just human and they can make mistakes. And like you say, they're affected by what they're used to at the time. So Exactly. And at the end of the day, they were fighting for a good cause and not that you know, any racism or things that fall through the cracks, that doesn't make that okay. But at the end of the day, you have to find a way to move forward. So moving this one forward with the second waivers, what was their legacy, their biggest accomplishments? I guess the second waivers with the 
you know, the Equal Pay Act. That was probably one of their biggest accomplishments. And the headway that they made for reproductive rights can't be overlooked, but we didn't get all of the way there. That that was part of the issue. And we're still not all of the way there because it just Look depending on America. where you are, where you live. Yeah, exactly. The rights that were so hard fought for and hard won at the time, they chipped away at very gradually. And it just, it, it happens with anything, I think, where people have achieved something like that, where they've achieved those rights, there will be some element of society that attempts to continue to undermine them because they don't want them to have those rights. So everything comes in waves. Is there a third wave? There is. There's a little bit of conjecture about whether feminism has now had four or five waves. The third wave, the next thing that follows is actually something called difference feminism. And that happened in the 1980s. Difference feminism was basically celebrating the differences and it embraced the concept that feminists could embrace their femininity again it kind of it, it took a different approach it said you know what you don't have to be someone who goes i'm not going to wear makeup and that makes me a feminist and you're not a good feminist if you choose to try and make yourself attractive they sort of rejected that and they said there are you know distinct differences between women and men and we celebrate those differences we are still equal but we are equal and different to them And if anything, femininity should be raised up. It should be celebrated. It's a beautiful thing. It's a strong thing to be feminine, which was a little bit different, obviously, to the second waivers who very much rejected femininity a lot of the time and more they went to a more androgynous place to try and get that equal footing with men. So I've just thought of just while you were you were going down that path, you've just made me think of something and it's not one of the questions or anything that I've sort of posed to you or warned you that I might be saying. Um, It's just really that, that terminology of feminism and celebrating feminism. It's really funny how, because in my head, when you were saying that, I was like, oh yeah, kind of like how they've done with masculinity over all of the years. You know, it's good to be masculine if you're a guy and, you know, you have to be this certain way. But then at the same time, we live in a world now where a lot of those masculine sort of views that we put on previous generations can now be seen as toxic to some degree. And also when we're talking about feminism as a boy, especially, you know, a young boy, and I was LGBT my entire life, it's who I am. I've not always been the most masculine of guys, but to be called feminine as a boy was such a, such a stab. Do you know what I mean? Like it was such a stab to who you are. You're not like other people. It's, it's a strange battle to, to witness when you read back over the history of these things and the femininity to be feminine as a boy. And even as a woman for a, a while there, it was almost like it was a dirty word. If that Yeah. Makes in some sense. And even, um, you know, going forward into the kind of nineties and two thousands, because just because a wave was over, doesn't mean that everything was dropped from it. And I can remember being called like a breeder by some women because I wanted to have kids. I don't anymore, but like for a brief period, I was like, Oh, maybe I want to have kids. And when you talk to other women about that, who were staunch feminists, they would literally put you down for it. They would be like, you're a breeder you know, which is kind of fucked up. Yeah. That's awful. Like you're, you're, you're a breeder and then breeding, by the way, it's not a bad thing, uh, but no. it's such a negative terminology to it. Do you think that those sorts of things being said to you as a young woman impacted whether or not you wanted to have kids later on, or have you made that decision, come to that decision through a different, I guess, train of thought sorry no i i don't think it affected whether or not that's quite personal <laughs> we're getting we're getting right into it guys it's a very serious podcast um look i don't think it affected my choice to have kids what it did affect was whether or not i wanted to identify with the feminism movement at the time because i felt that that was very exclusionary and it didn't respect women's choices and i was like not down with your attitude and your behavior about this so Yeah, I think not wanting to have kids is something I came to on my own, just sort of, I don't know, you sort of, you grow, you develop as a person and you start to really stop, isolate and identify what your wants and needs are and what makes you happy. And I don't really want children. So I think to have them for the sake of having them because the fear that if I don't have them, you know, is worrying me, I'm not going to Like there are some people who say you will be upset if you don't have kids. If you get to 40 and you haven't had any, you're going to regret it. I don't think I will. 
Um, but you know, I don't think that's a reason to have kids. Like fear that I will regret it later is not a, it's not a valid choice for yeah. children. I don't think that's okay. No, like no, you should have kids because okay. you want kids. So yeah. So looking back on those people who called you a breeder, that that's sort of that terminology. Would you say that that was? Gosh, what's the word I'm looking for? I had it a second ago. Now I feel very unprofessional. All right, this is not the word I'm looking for, so forgive me. Ah, I remember an extreme feminist. Yeah, I would say I wouldn't call it being a feminist. I would say that it's that's coming from a place of like the second wave feminism. I don't think that's what feminism's really about. I think that it it was an opinion and an ideology built in built in, I guess, pulling other women down if they chose to engage with or be a part of the systems of what what was viewed as the systems of oppression that we've been stuck in for so long. If you chose to be a mother, if you chose to get married, if you chose any of those things, then you were still a part of the problem somehow. It, it doesn't have to be like that. And it shouldn't have been like that to begin with. But I can see how, like, logically, it does make sense to me that they would sort of be like, reject it all. Otherwise, we'll never get anywhere. Because yeah. without that kind of intensity... How could you sort of, I guess, divorce yourself from the previous expectations of you? I do understand how it came about. I just think that by the time I was, you know, a teenager in the early 2000s, it was really fucking outdated. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, very. All right, let's carry on with the history of feminism. Yeah, so we were up to the third. I'm, I'm... I don't know if I can really call it the third wave because I don't think it was acknowledged as a wave of feminism at the time, but difference feminism of the 1980s, embracing femininity, you know, being able to sort of engage with beauty again as an empowering act, all that kind of stuff came about during that period. And then you had third or fourth wave, depending on how you view the waves, uh, in the 1990s. And that really kicked off because of the riot girls and everything that they did, those kind of political um, statements that they were making, where they were going and protesting, um, all that kind of stuff really kicked off another wave of feminism in the 90s because a lot of the things that we were still trying to fix at that point hadn't been fixed. There was still systematic oppression of women. The patriarchy was still an issue. It's still an issue now. You know, we still didn't have complete reproductive rights. We still don't now. So there was still plenty to fight. So it kind of it woke up that generation And they started to really engage with that and, you know, really push for and think about how they could move forward. And again, it still had that overhang of, I guess, the angry feminist trope at the time. It was still something people thought of. And I think forever there will be a trope of the angry feminist because we've got a lot to be angry about and telling, you know, sort of telling a feminist to calm down and to give her views in a more palatable way just buys into the very issues that they are fighting against. So. And can you just smile while you do it, please smile more. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man. Exactly. Exactly though. It's those microaggressions. Mm -hmm. um, And they're experienced more by people who fall within different intersections. You know, the, the angry lesbian is a trope and the angry, um, you know, black woman, that's another trope that people believe and they will buy into that very quickly. If you show any emotion and you are a woman of color, if you show any emotion as a gay woman, like, oh, you know, she's just an angry dyke, like, or she's just an angry black woman, that kind of crap that, yeah, there's just no place for it. And with any demographic of people, if you go in there, you'll find someone who's angry about something, right? You don't need to yeah. blanket everybody with the same And frankly, don't they have the right to be angry? Like, I think they have the right. I think we have the right. I think you have the right. It's an emotion. It's an emotion that we're entitled to. We are experiencing oppression. They are experiencing much worse oppression. Like, yeah. do not, do not tell them they don't have a right to be angry. Exactly. Pain is pain. Now, mm. um... I, for me, when I think about this, the 90s wave of feminism, it's very, for me, I guess, because it was, I guess, my, my formative years, my teen years, my, you know, late prepubescent and then into my teen years, I always remember, I like, I'm going to put this down to a very strange comparison, but I remember Alanis Morissette, right? Jagged Little Pill. 
This whole feminism wave for the 90s for me is very musical. Jagged Little Pill came out. Everybody loved it. Record of the decade. But very much called an angry feminist because she was man-hating and all of these things. And at the same time, in retrospect, you look at Gwen Stefani and No Doubt when they did I'm Just a Girl. Mm. Like To me, that's more of a feminist statement than pretty much most of Jagged Little Pill. But because they could, I guess, market the her Alanis Morissette as somebody who was angry, she became more of a feminist icon as opposed to somebody like Gwen Stefani who was quirky and colourful and colorful. all those things. You know, she was just a girl living in captivity, all of those things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <clears throat> not just uh, those artists, but Tori Amos and... Yeah. Um, you know, like, uh, what was the other one I was thinking? Anything of? Lilith. Oh, yeah, there. Courtney. Yeah, <laughs> Courtney Love, uh, Hole, you know, all of that. It's all kind of like that was the 90s feminine. There was very much a big movement in the music scene. You're so right about that. Like, it was very focused in music. But yeah, I, I mean, I think that that kind of stuff, that's where we sort of, that's where we remember those feminist icons from the 90s. Even the and- Spice Girls, you're sugarcoated feminists you know oh yeah get friendly they would go power and all of that kind of stuff and you know i'm down with it it's all right i mean yeah. when i was 11 it was my jam so <laughs> <laughs> i'm i'm 35 and it's still my jam <laughs> uh but yeah so i mean that was the 90s uh some people call that the fourth wave uh some people call it the third wave I guess it depends whether you count the 1980s one as a wave or not. Next wave, fourth or fifth, depending on what your opinion is about whether the 80s was a wave of feminism, mm-hmm. that would be the one that we're currently in. It's born of the social media movements because activism has now got multiple platforms on which you can reach people and you can be an activist and be engaged in activism online as well as out in the world. So that is where that kind of developed and that wave really exploded and moved through from about 2012 onwards. And obviously with the Me Too movement broke in 20, was that 2014, 2015? You know it's actually longer ago than I think it is. You know what yeah. I mean? My perspective of that is somewhat skewed. I feel like the Me Too movement was sort of, it was happening, but it wasn't huge yet. And it really exploded in 2017. And that's when we all really heard a lot about it because it gained a lot of momentum and it coupled, you know, with the Times Up movement and everything else. Basically, the wave feminism that we're in now is intersectional feminism, which, as I was talking about previously, it is all about providing a platform and acknowledging the intersections and the level of privilege from which you're coming to the conversation with. So as a middle-class white woman, when I talk about feminism, I'm talking about my experience of feminism, my experience of oppression, which is not the same as a woman of color talking about their experience of oppression, you know, I've not been as oppressed as that. And same for anyone from the LGBTQI plus community, anything like that. It's about acknowledging a place of privilege and also using what platform you have to step aside and provide that platform to others who have not had it as often so that they can speak on their own behalf because historically feminism has been so white and so privileged. Right. Educated. Um, that's, yeah, it's a, really that's interesting. A, it's, a really, it's a really nice way to talk about it because, you know, it's almost that when you're talking about, you know, people having a platform and then using their platform to share it with other people so that they can too have a voice, and particularly when you're talking about it with feminism, there's a lot of that women helping women to, to be seen and to be heard and to, to say what they have to say. It seems like the, the wave of feminism that we might be riding at the moment is a lot more inclusive than it might have been way back at the start. Um, it's sort of something that I guess they were yeah. striving to achieve during, I guess, the late 80s and the 90s, but just weren't quite getting there. And then with technology and social media and social platforms the way they are today, there's more opportunity to, to help. Oh, absolutely. And also because we've, uh, like society has changed in that 20 years since the 90s, you know, or well, 25 to 30 years since the 90s. It's a very different world that we live in now. And people have become more aware 
and they're more kind of tuned into the realities of social injustices in a way that they weren't at the time. So it would be a very strange world if feminism had not progressed like the rest of society has and not accepted that there were these, you know, social justice issues outside of its scope or that intersected with its scope, you know, that they were. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Not helping to address or fix. Yeah, that makes sense. So to wrap up the history of feminism so far, what are your final thoughts on that? I mean, it's such a long movement. It's such a complicated movement. What really struck me when I was digging into some of the research with this, I mean, obviously one resounding point is there's a lot of flaws in the way um, feminism was approached and the way the arguments were constructed and the way that they excluded people previously. But at the same time, the other thing that was really resounding was, oh my God, there's some rights we still don't have. And (laughs) that's insane. We've been at this so long. Everyone's so tired, but you've got to keep fighting. Exactly. They're so tired. Hand them a rosé. So guys, that's a wrap for this week's episode of the podcast. Thank you so much for listening, for allowing me to share again something that I'm very passionate about that is feminism, women's rights, equality, equal rights, human rights. We're all on this planet together and we should be more compassionate and caring for each other. So with that in mind, I'm going to keep the end segment short. I'm going to say stay safe, look after each other, respect each other, and I'll see you next time.